Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wine, Women, and Words. I'm Michelle, and with me is Diana, of course, and we have author uh, V.E. Ulette. I should have asked how to pronounce that name as well. I'm sorry, but she will be known as Eva tonight. Welcome, Eva. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so my last name is Ulette. Okay, I'm sorry. I have my my maiden name was the last name that everyone butchered, and my married name is the name that everyone butchered. So, I really, I'm usually more on top of asking how names are pronounced to make sure I don't commit the same same mistake. Not at all. I was looking at the spelling of your last name, and I, yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are different variations of it. We we get Levias. Levis, Levis, so we just kind of answered all of them. What's correct? Uh, it's Levis, um, but it kind of depends on who we're talking to. My husband always says Levis because that's what his uh, co workers always, how they always pronounce it. I always say Levis, so we just kind of confuse people with different pronunciations. Well, I, I do that with my first name as well um, because. You know, I write as V-E, which is a reversal of my initials. My, my name is Eva Vicky, my middle mm -hmm. name. And so growing up, my family called me Vicky. And mm. then when I started, when I got out of high school and I started working and going to college, I thought, well, I'm going to use Eva or I'll never use it. It's my grandmother's name. And it really is Eva, but we won't get into that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have... Um, People I have, have a friend in uh, in San Diego, and I had, I was mispronouncing her name for I think two years before someone finally said, you know, it's actually Eva. And it took maybe another six months to actually break myself of the habit of saying Eva. Yeah, of saying Eva. Well, so so I started using Eva, my first name in business, but then you know somebody would family would call on the phone, can I speak to Vicky and the, uh, my office would say, well, we don't have anybody here by that. <laughs> so, it, you know, I'm a little bit psychotic. <laughs> you all go with me. With me, with my maiden name, it's uh, Giovanazzo. And when I was a little kid, I still remember telling my mother, when I get married one day, I'm going to marry a man who's got a shorter last name than me. It's so long, and everybody mispronounced it. I mean, I, I cut off teachers when they started to say it, and because it was always that bad. And so I married a Tierney, a nice Irish boy with a short Irish last name. And now that I'm getting more into writing, and we t started talking about my pen name, and my focus is going to be on um, Italian history. So like, I think I need to start including my maiden name again for my pen name. So I'm getting used to saying Giovanazzo again and having to spell it out to people and tell them how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. The whole issue of pen names, you know, what you call yourself is, is kind of complicated too. So how'd you end up with them? So you went by Vicky and then Eva. So how did you decide to just abbreviate them? As well, so my first three novels were historical fiction and specifically nautical historical fiction. And that's, that's a real primary, it's probably a split market, you know, 50% male, 50% female, but the perception is it's mainly male. 
Mm -hmm. So I used the initials and reversed because EV sounds like Eve, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not, not much different than my actual first name. So I reversed the initials and the, and the, the um, use of initials in the author name is just to disguise your sex, you know, confusion to the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Isn't that what... Um, I think I read somewhere that uh, J.K. Rowling did the same thing because uh, an agent or a publisher or someone told her that no one would buy her books if they thought that it, they were written by a woman. So she just went by, she picked J.K. to to go by instead of her actual name. Well, I hadn't really heard any story about how how she picked her, her name to use as an author, but um, I, it seems credible. Story. <laughs> yeah, I think um, yeah, it was uh, her initials, one of her her name, and I think her like her grandmother's name too was combined mm -hmm. in the in her initials because there was a whole biopic on her on Netflix that I watched. Oh, yeah. I probably watched the same one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll have to look for that. Yeah, it was uh, a fun little piece. But tonight we are talking about your book, which is Golden Dragon. And we finished it. We finished it on the same day, just like hours apart from each other. So mm -hmm. as soon as, <clears throat> as soon as we both finished it, the text messages started going, and we started <laughs> just analyzing it and debating because we had a pretty, uh, not heated, but a very passionate debate over uh, Dashwood versus Thorpe a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that that was fun to listen to last week. <laughs> And I'm I still won. Team Dashwood. I'm still Team Dashwood. I'm, there's going to be, you, I, I think you said there's going to be two more books, right? Um, well, there's going to be at least one more, the one that I'm working on now, and I have to, you know, hope that a spark happens for a third, possibly. <laughs> well, I'm going to be Team Dashwood, at least, I mean, for the second one. Especially, is I've got hope, especially at the end of the this last book, so... I've got hope that, you know, Dashwood could come in and just steal everything away. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> I, I like the the whole discussion of Team Dashwood versus Team Thorpe, I guess. Uh, <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> yes, and I think because we are in the age of steampunk, there wouldn't actually be brawls. It would be a duel between the two. <laughs> I see some gloves smacking people upside the face, that sort of thing. And in that situation, Thorpe studied in Edinburgh with Dr. I can't remember his name right now, but the doctor who clearly won that duel, so Dashwood would not stand much of a chance, unfortunately. Don't yeah. underestimate the underdog. <laughs> well. They could be scrappy, you know. They Okay, underdogs usually are scrappy. I'll give you that. But... He's Scottish, and he's brilliant, and I don't think Dashwood would win. <laughs> Dashwood's looking. <laughs> <laughs> he has that. He definitely does, and I really, and it's not like I didn't like him, because I totally liked him up until I met Thorpe, and then it just, it just switched, you know, he just slid down just barely like half a notch it wasn't even a full notch <laughs> well what and now a question for you this way michelle and i can stop debating uh dashwood versus thorpe um 
what went into making these two characters? What were your thoughts on this and the influences? Well, Dashwood, to be honest, at least in my mind, is a is a bit of a red herring mm -hmm. because when you first meet him, when Miriam first meets him, you think, oh, you know, the, this is this is the couple in the book. The, the, these are going to be the the two that are matched up, and then I don't like to do the expected. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Um, you know, I, I wanted to show that Dashwood, little by little, is kind of a conventional person, you know, and that that's why he wasn't really a, a, a good match for Miriam, because she's not an unconventional person. So um, that, you know, I, I kind of set that up that way, that first you're led to believe that Dashwood and Miriam are going to be a couple, but then it, it story kind of goes in, in different directions. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, so you're Team Thorpe too. <laughs> Team Thorpe too. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but yes, I'm <laughs> So as far as, you know, Miriam is really unconventional and she definitely blazes her own trail and she doesn't really care what anyone thinks that she's supposed to do. And if someone thinks she's supposed to do something, she kind of does the opposite. I loved her. I loved her character. Yeah, I did too. And, you know, coming from her, her cultural background, you know, women aren't really or weren't really supposed to, to be that, you know, that independent, they're supposed to be a little bit more submissive and kind of stand back in the background. How much of her um, culture influences her actions? Well, I think there's a great deal of uh, cultural influence, but it, it, for me, it's more not tied to her uh, upbringing in Iran as much as of women overall in the 19th century. Now, the story takes place, even though it's an alternate history sort of place, uh, uh, world, roughly in 1820. So at that time, women had no legal status. They, they weren't really people in the sense that you, you couldn't own, own property, you couldn't bring a case in law, and, and so on. You had both in Europe and I think in the Middle East, there was women were dependent on men for economic well-being. South America too. My book starts in the mid 1800s. I want to say like roughly 1860, and the same thing there. The women were dependent upon the men for their economic well-being. You had to marry. You can make a life outside of uh, a man for yourself. Yeah, that's right. So. Mm -hmm. So these factors have tremendous influence on the character and her motivations and what she's trying to, um, you know, trying to build a life for herself is kind of independently is, is sort of a um, subversive act, you know, <laughs> revolutionary act. Uh, so her, her culture and the, the times that this character is living in has tremendous influence on, on, um, on her, on what she's on the life that she's trying to build for herself. And um, you mentioned just now that that you know this the story takes place in 
a slightly alternate reality, but I really liked how you kind of made it so seamless that you kind of forget that it's a an science fiction book that are not not necessarily science fiction, but a fantasy. Right, yeah. fantasy. Thank you. So you kind of wove it together so seamlessly that it sounded plausible that there could be flying ships and that a crack ship captain like Thorpe was a you know a normal thing for any Navy to have. <laughs> I thought it was really well done the way that you did that. Well, thanks. Uh, I, I read a description about um, certain types of historical fantasy where they say it's historical fiction with a quarter turn to the fantastic. So kind of like <laughs> that description. Well, one of the things I loved about it was um, it's so refreshing to read a steampunk style book. Because, I mean, it's steampunk-esque with the, the crack ships and things. Um, but to get it from somewhere outside of London and to look at um, Algiers and the South Pacific and China, just um, I, found, I found it that part of it, the setting was refreshing. So many of these have just been done in London that it actually turned me off. I was like, I'm tired of reading about London in the 1800s. Yeah, a steampunk in particular, I think, is there, the majority of it is set in Victorian age London, mm -hmm. uh, or England at least. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that was very intentional. I wanted to get away from the strict, strictly Eurocentric setting and characters. So I wanted mm -hmm. to. I wanted to you know, have uh, have something outside that that kind of colonial setting. Well, you and did quite well with that, I think. What, pardon me? Yeah, I think you did quite well with that. I really, like I said, I really love that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a it's it's a challenge, of course, because for me, I do a lot of reading around. Um, you know, these various settings, Algiers and South Africa, and then um, the, the Pacific, you know, the um, South China Sea region and the Celibus Sea. And, yeah, I think there's a lot to get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of possibility for going wrong there. And so, let me just check here. Uh, and uh, I just made a note while we were talking. So are we, um, in the next book that you're working on, are we going to find out what Miriam did to get so indebted to the British government that they can send her on these almost suicide missions and she basically has to accept it? Well, the, or the, original, the original impetus was they helped her get out of Iran. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's always, well, we'll help you, but in exchange for. And the exchange for was the adventure that takes place in, in this book, Golden Dragon. But I think by the end, now we see that, that she's, she's or, or at least I've set up for another adventure, right? That they're going right. to send her off to do something else. But I, I think at this point, at the end of this book, she's, choosing to stay in this life. She could, e even at the beginning, she could have backed out. You know, she could have said, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't for me. Sure, 
I'll go back to Algiers and then make her own way wherever. So I think that she's become uh, enchanted with the, with the life, with a risk-taking life and with an adventurous life and with a uh, life that, that has a level of independence that she's seeking. So I think it's not so much that, that now at the, at the conclusion of Golden Dragon that she's being coerced or forced as much as um, kind of writing it for what she can get out of it. And I like the fact that, um, you know, what she touched on with her liking it and um, wanting more of it almost, um, well, I don't know, would you call it like maybe addiction or is this just the way of life that she wants? Think maybe she's addicted to the adventure yeah I, I think it's those things that she had not really imagined the the um, level of independence and, and adventure that she could achieve until she got on the on the ship and then became kind of enchanted with the with the the um, sailing and mm -hmm. with the feeling of liberty and, and freedom Especially, you know, that extra thing of being disconnected from terrestrial setting. Yeah. So, yeah, I think she's, it, it's not so much a coercion anymore, if it ever was, as mm -hmm. much as, um, you know, a, a sort of risk-seeking now that she's discovered within herself. And then... And I think that in and of itself is unique um, and something to be looked at where you have the concept of a woman who gets addicted to this adventure because typically it's always the man who's addicted to the adventure. The man who can't sit still in one place, who wants to just go everywhere. Um, she's almost, if you allow me the liberty, 19th century James Bond-esque, pretty much. <laughs> and yeah. You know how... Um they talk about an elevator pitch for books. You know, mm -hmm. what's your book about? Tell me in one sentence, what's your book about? So, so early on, I, I was describing Golden Dragon as the new Ms. Marvel meets James Bond. Ooh, <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> you guys know who Ms. Marvel is? Yeah, I do. You know, you know, okay, Michelle. I do. <laughs> I don't know with all the, I don't know what comics you know, what you don't know, so. This is. Miss Marvel. Love so, Miss Marvel. Yeah, me too. I love G. Willow Wilson. I admire her a lot. I read uh, this book that's sort of research for Golden Dragon. This is her book, um, The Butterfly Mosque. And it's a, um, it's a nonfiction about her conversion to Islam and her, her courtship and marriage to an Egyptian man. Really interesting, really interesting book, really interesting read. And that's a beautiful cover too. Yeah, isn't wow. it? Very, mm -hmm. very pretty. I, I think it's, the book has a couple of cover variants, you know, how they have one that's the hardcover and one that's the paperback and one that's the UK edition. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that, that that was my like one sentence description for Golden Dragon, but I always had to qualify it, or I felt that I had to qualify it as James Bond without the misogyny. 
because you know there I, have either of you ever read Ian Fleming the James Bond novels no I, I the books not the books well there's there's plenty wrong with the movies too. <laughs> my problem is a lot of people are probably gonna hate me and I'm probably gonna get hate mail after this but I've tried to watch the movies and I fall asleep every single time. <laughs> Um, I can't watch them without falling asleep. I think I made it halfway through um, the Pierce Brosnan one. I'm that bad with it. Um, and I just, I gave up. I can't do it. I figured yeah. if I'm going to break that way with the movies, I'm not even going to try the books. Well, the books, the books, I've only read the first one, Casino Royale. And it, it's a, it's a good kind of a absorbing adventure story, but Oh, there's some <laughs> there, you know. So yeah, I always feel like I gotta distance myself from, from that aspect. <laughs> well, with names like was a pussy galore, and I mean, I don't even remember the other names. How can it not be misogynistic? And then you know they're referred to as the Bond girls. Yes, that's right, the Bond girls. Women, you know, they're not girls. I, I kind of object to this proliferation of girl titles, you know, the girl on the train, on <laughs> girl, all the girl, and none of them are girls. <laughs> They're all women, you know. If they were, it would be a really bad, bad story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I, I guess maybe it was kicked off by the girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, Again, yeah. not a girl by any stretch of the imagination. No. That is true, yeah. And but, I think maybe it also harkens to our society's um, obsession with youth, where we'd rather have a girl, a young girl in a situation versus a woman. Yeah, but who doesn't love Lizbeth Solander, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I kind of love I love a woman that kicks butt that way. We all do. That's why yes. she's so popular. Yeah, I think that was one of the only things I liked about that book was her. Oh. <laughs> I had so many, it was such a rough book for me, uh, but I liked her and I kept reading for her. Yeah, I, I pretty much read all, all of them, the whole trilogy. I, I listened to them, which may make it a little easier because I, I grant you that that first book, for me, it was very slow up until the time, you know. It was, there was a lot of, <laughs> there were a lot of names. That's the only thing that I had a problem with was they, there was, there was such a big family tree that you kind of lost track of who you're even reading about at, at certain times. Well, I think um, possibly listening to the audiobooks helps with that, especially mm -hmm. with the um, foreign names of cities and places and so on. You get the, oh, the professional pronunciation and it sticks in right. <laughs> Well, as far as, um, as far as the research that you did, do you have any background, any nautical background? Because your descriptions of the ships and how they work, it was really detailed and, and really, I mean, you knew what you were talking about. Well, thanks for that. Um, no, I have none. It's all from books. Um, wow. So, you know, I did a lot, a lot of reading from my first 
three novels about the Royal Navy of the 19th century, the um, Royal, English Royal Navy, and the battles and, and the culture, you know, what was happening in, in, the two, in the countries that were at war at that time. And their politics and their religion and all kinds of detailed stuff. So I guess if I belong to a fandom at all, it's for Patrick O'Brien's books. Are you familiar with those at all? The Aubrey Matron books? I am not. How about you, Michelle? I don't, the, the name sounds familiar, but I don't think I, I, I know I haven't read them, but I think the name sounds familiar. So there was um there was a movie Master and Commander mm. a few years ago. Oh yes. Yes. So that Master and Commander is the first book in a twenty book series by Patrick O'Brien. Okay. It's all historical naval nautical fiction. But gotcha. it's like the pinnacle. <laughs> yeah, my husband and my father in law made me watch that movie Master and Commander about twenty times within a one month. I'm spent right after it came out on DVD. So be familiar with that one. Possibly he's a big Patrick O'Brien fan. That movie was a mashup of incidents from various books, which I didn't really care for too much, but mm. it's a good movie. They did a good, they did a good job with all the um, the shipboard scenes and the battles and stuff, I think. Um, but no, I, I'm not a sailor of any type. In fact, I'm a little afraid of what they call blue water sailing, which is when you get way out there and you can't see land at all. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's kind of terrifying. Um, so there you go. <laughs> and how did you does, how did you create the non-such as far as you know figuring out how a ship would fly if it was even possible? Um, well, to return to your comment that it, you know, all these details seem seem very authentic and so on. From the other side, like the the side of readers and say, real sailors, they probably think it's terrible, <laughs> <laughs> terrible light on detail, won't work, nothing to do with reality. So that's that's the other side of it. So the the challenge is really to strike a balance between, um, you know, too much detail that may satisfy a certain readership that is really into the, the workings of 19th century tall ships and so on, and just enough detail that someone gets the feeling like, yeah, this is possible, which I'm glad to hear that you got that feeling. <laughs> So the the I, I know just a little bit of basic stuff about early flight and early air, aircraft and my husband is a private pilot or was you know back in the day when he was actively flying so I talked to him a little bit about how the how the the physics of it and he told me well they didn't really figure out until World War One aircraft this business of the elevator which is the the um, mechanism that pushes the tail of the plane down during takeoff so that the nose is pushed up mm -hmm. and that depresses the nose of the plane on descent so that you get that um, 
okay. know, ability, ability to land. <laughs> yeah, that's my rudimentary under, understanding of physics of flight. Wouldn't work <laughs> at all, of course. And I was told so by some early readers that are true sailors. So that's <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's fantasy. <laughs> I know it's not gonna work. <laughs> You and I have talked um, offline about <laughs> diversity in books, and then you did a wonderful post for me uh, that went up today, in case anybody um, wants to check it out, it's at creatingherstory.wordpress.com. And I want to touch base about um, the diver diversity, and this is a very diverse book. I wasn't expecting it to be so diverse with, um, you've got Miriam and her you know, with her being uh, Middle Eastern, but then we go into um, South Africa and we deal with the slaves um, and then the um, slave trade with the women and the one wonderful character who was named this, the slave woman's name. I forget her name. Huh? huh? In um, the Golden, the golden the Dragon, Crunk? Yes, thank you. I have absolutely adored her character. Such a great character. Um, talk to me a little bit about your um, your diversity plans for this, or your thoughts on creating such a diverse book. Well, again, I wanted to get away from just having the characters be Englishmen or Frenchmen, or or just strictly European, or, or Amer I haven't really done much with Americans other than vilify them in my, <laughs> in my fiction, but um, so I, you know, it was, it was purposeful that I wanted to, I wanted to show characters, even if it's just a glimpse of them, say in South Africa, as, as real people, you know, that, that had, um, facets to them other than just their nationality mm -hmm. also. So I, I wanted to sort of humanize the, the characters from various um, ethnicities and cultural backgrounds in the in the context of the story so that that was important to me to do um, also you know I, I think the whole issue of having uh, diverse characters in your fiction is is really important because everyone wants to see themselves reflected in in literature and mm -hmm. TV shows and movies and books novels, poetry, I think it's really important to, to do that, to try for that, even though, you know, it is sort of a fraught, um, a fraught subject or approach as I, I tried to um, bring out in that, in that article, in the post mm -hmm. that I wrote for you, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, there's, there, there's always a lot of push and pull and, and people that think that they don't need to think very hard about about writing diverse characters, whereas I am kind of scared to death. <laughs> I'll do it, but I'm I'm frightened about it at this at the same time. You know. I don't blame you. My NaNoWriMo book, um, I've got some Japanese characters in there because it deals with the internment camps and the Italians in the internment camps, and of course they're going to run into the Japanese. And so I've got a friend who is Japanese, and he has offered to read read my story so that I can make sure. And you know, I didn't even think about it until um, 
until the post of two days because I was just like, I told him about it. And he's like, oh, I'd love to read it. You know, my I had family who was in the internment camps. And I was like, oh, great. Didn't, you know, didn't think anything of it. And then once, you know, you posted your article, I was like, oh, this is such a good idea because of this. And, you know, given that he's a friend who's also a writer, you know, he could give me some good points on it if I screwed stuff up. That That's a wonderful situation, you know. Mm -hmm. I really admire Julie Rose um, that you had on because mm -hmm. independent, independently she sought out um, a review from someone in Tunisia. Really? So she just went on her own and, and contacted somebody, I think through Tumblr. Okay. Um, con you know, made a connection with somebody, was bold enough to ask, would you review my, my manuscript, my book? And I, I just think that's wonderful that, you know, to to, and you need to do it. You need to go and actively seek out uh, the opinion of the, the communities that you're writing about. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really important. So recently I read this book, Hamilton, the Revolution. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a book all about the production of the play Hamilton. Oh, yes. And what was really moving was how much the portrayal of the founding fathers by people of actors of color, how, mm -hmm. much meant, you know, how much it meant to the, the place creator, to the actors themselves, to the whole production crew, and finally to the audiences. Um, so uh, I, I think it's really important to, um, to write diverse characters, to, to portray them, to see yourself portrayed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, um, I liked with your book with um, the scene in South Africa with her dealing with the slaves. Um, you know, in the, the dinner party where I was literally in my car rooting for her out loud um, during my lunch break. And I'm sure people that are walking in out of my office building were like, what the hell is she yelling about? Because um, I was totally rooting on Miriam and her, her take on it. And, you know, I like that it's not just that you covered the, um, the people in a respectful manner. It's the fact that you touched on some serious issues um, that still resonate with today that you could totally hear through that language and you know that I, I commend you for doing that because I think that's so important too with covering diverse uh, characters. And as far as um, now you know this you could consider this mainly a love story between or not mainly but you know a prevalent story arch is the love story between Thorpe and uh, Miriam or as some people would like to consider it a love triangle between Dashwood, Thorpe, and Miriam. Um, but your your book is really about empowering women. There is a lot of strong, <clears throat> strong female characters. Even the Golden Dragon is a fierce woman that you really don't want to mess with. Um, did you go into your story with the intention of creating a really strong cast of female characters? Yeah, I did. At least for the protagonists. So for this book, I wanted I wanted a female protagonist, and I wanted I wanted her to be an ordinary woman. You know, I didn't want to give her um, superpowers or have her be a real Laura Croft, Tomb Raider type of character, although she people love those characters, you know, 
And, and in fact, I had a reader comment on one of my one of my uh, my first novel that ha it has sort of has a dual protagonist again, but the main protagonist is male, and then he ends up hooking up or eventually marrying a Spanish American woman. And I had a reader tell me that I had missed a real opportunity to make her a kick-ass heroine. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, it, if you're going to do historical fiction, it's got to be kind of realistic. <laughs> <laughs> and so to have a woman character, you know, beating up men and being super aggressive and um, warrior-like is not very realistic for early 19th century. Uh, so, you know, I, I did want a female protagonist, but I wanted her to be relatable as an ordinary woman that sort of uses her wits instead of uh, ability to fight. Um, Krunk is more the character, the warrior character. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was intentional that, that uh, you know, I, I'm interested in certain things and that's what I want to write about. I'm interested in social justice, in um, gender equality, and gender roles. Uh, so these are the things that I want to write about, but I, I hope to do it in, in, if you will, a lighthearted way. You know, I don't want to be super serious. In fact, I don't want to be serious at all <laughs> for the most part. I got, I got well, I found Miriam to be a role model. I, I really, you know, reading through, I think she is definitely a role model, especially for um, Middle Eastern girls, where you have this character that they could get behind, who um, she's strong, she's independent, she kind of bucks the system a little bit, but yet she still carries so much of um, her culture with her, and she still honors her culture without having going too far into the religious aspects of it. So I yeah I, th I think you managed that. Oh good yeah I, <laughs> I wanted to you know have her be a person of integrity, uh, mm -hmm. not not terribly religious or or, or terribly um, you know stuck within the the role that she thinks that women should should be in. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah those those were intentional themes in, in the book, but I hope that a lighthearted tone comes through. <laughs> but yes, I think Thrax helps with that. He's definitely um, got that bit of a lightheartedness, even when he, I suppose, is tearing out uh, somebody's throat. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> now, with speaking of Thrax, um, when I brought up the idea of naming our bearded jacket that we're getting this weekend, Thrax, which I just love that name, um, the first thing my husband did was do a Google search of the name Thrax. And it turns out he's, uh, it's also the name of the son of Ares, um, god of war in Greek mythology. Um, did mythology actually influence your creation of this critter? Uh, no. I, I read that question and I thought, well, that's... That's news to me. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I I didn't know. Um, so Thrax uh, is supposed to be the ultimate Thracian, and Thrace was a historic place. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's difficult with that far back in history, but 
Thrace was um, a region covering Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria. So it's a big region. And I think it's um, where Spartacus is from. Mm-hmm. Huh. Sense, yeah, because um, Thrax, Ares' son, um, was it was from the Thracian region was where he was located from. So. Yeah, so I didn't know about Ares. <laughs> <laughs> well, we yeah. might as well now we're commenting that, that cat names and go make really good dragon names. Like you could totally picture. I mean, you got the cat Thrax. And now we've got we're gonna have the dragon name Thrax. Smog will go great as a cat name. Falcor, um, you know, they in, in both sides. And I'm still trying to talk my husband into letting me have a reptile named Fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> I totally think that would be a great reptile name. And this is coming from the girl who has a tortoise named Zippy. So, I'm just saying. <laughs> so. What do you what do you two think of Thrax as a character? Do you think he's just a sidekick, or do you think that there's more there? You want to go first? Inhaled at the same time. <laughs> I think there's more there. Um, I especially think there's more potential for there to be more there. I think, um, like Miriam in the in this book, he's unassuming where. He kind of like Miriam. He steps back. He can, he can analyze the situation from the side, and nobody assumes that he's going to turn into this tiger and kill you. Um, so he's very unsuspecting, like that. And Miriam, in a lot of ways, is is like that. Um, where I feel like she can she she can shrink herself down and be small, and nobody suspects that she could be this dangerous operative. Um, but I think this is almost like their origin story for their for their relationship. And I feel like there can, there can be more and that there is more that he's bonded to her because obviously he had to go with her everywhere she went. Um, almost like, what was it, um, in Havenhurst. Um, but I, don't, I don't know if you've had a, ch- a chance to check that out, Eva, yet. Um, but she's got those, these little flying cats. Those are her sidekicks that you know are bonded to her um, and then to her, so with, without them, she would get sick. That's how bonded they are. So I kind of feel like there's a similar symbiotic relationship between her and Thrax, at least at this point. What about you? Well, I think, so there was, well, I, I first of all, I love Thrax in that one scene where the um, where he's swimming after her and they whack him over the head. I, I was reading that chapter and I was sitting there going, no, why would she do that? <laughs> and I'm so used to Diana being ahead of me in the books that I almost text her. And, <laughs> and I said, Can you believe that, that this just happened? And I'm really glad that I didn't because I was actually ahead of her at that point. But, um, <laughs> but there was a part when once um, Miriam had evacuated all of the um, all of the girls and they were on the the tabletop mountain um, setting up the the fire and she had mentioned that they were looking at her like she was a witch and she you know she kind of thought well what if I wonder what they would think if they knew that my familiar was out there (laughs) Um, I kind of think that really um, really describes their relationship really well where she he's 
you know, he's basically her her bodyguard now. Like, if Thorpe or or Dashwood is ever unable to help her, or if she's unable to help herself, you know, Thrax will always be there to step in. Um, but I I hope that he's he's in the next story because I really liked him. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny that you bring up the scene where he gets whacked over the head uh, because in Chad Thuman's book, another book author, um, in The Undesirables, there's a dog in there. And I was maybe, I wasn't even quite halfway through, and this dog gets himself into trouble. And I'm one of those people where if I'm watching a movie and the animal gets killed, that's it, I'm done. I can't watch the movie. It's, I turn it off, I'm over it. And um, and so when that happened, I started giving Chad a hard time. So it's like, is this dog gonna die? I'm, I'm getting attached to this animal, is it gonna die? And so I was picking on him a little bit about it. And then I get to that point and I'm like, son of a monkey, I, I gave Chad this hard time and I didn't even expect this with this book. This cat better not die now. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I liked the character of Duck. The the German Shepherd in Jack mm -hmm. Thurman's book. Um, I guess we're all just suckers for animal characters, huh? But um, you get super attached to them. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, I, I read that um, if you're gonna have an animal character, especially in a fantasy book, that it that mm -hmm. it ought to stand for something. Um, you know, it, it, it's not just for, uh, for the cute. <laughs> <laughs> That, that that animal character should be an aspect of the, possibly of the main character's personality. Mm -hmm. Or have something to do with the, you know, some, something to do beyond just a pet. <laughs> <laughs> I but, love that. Because, yeah, so often, you know, it's so easy to, when you're writing, to just do a pet that's just kind of, a reflection like you either give it too many humanistic characteristics you make it too human and it loses its animal-like um aspect or you just make it such a caricature of what an animal can be that it has no uh, attachment and so i like that saying because then it means the animal actually has an attachment to the character but you know who doesn't like who wouldn't like a, a cat that can change size like a mood ring you know right my husband, that's why we needed to go with that for the uh, bearded dragon. I'm like, he's in this cage, he's going to be nice and small. We take him out of his cage and boom, he's going to be a big old dragon. <laughs> Don't know if I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> my husband's like, um, okay, all right. <laughs> Just go with it. Just go with it. Yeah, you'll love it, honey. Just, yeah. I end up having to tell him that a lot. <laughs> Well, when I when we got to that part where Thrax was huge, I had to go back and reread, and I, I thought, "Am I reading that right? That he actually changed size?" <laughs> and and yes, yes, I was. But I think that you know you kind of set us up for that at the very beginning when she was introduced to to Thrax, and they kind of told her like, "Oh, you know, he's he's a Hellcat. You shouldn't shouldn't mess with him. Just stay away from him." So. There was a, a little, unintentional or intentional, there was a little foreshadowing that he would play a pretty big part, I think, once he selected Miriam as 
uh, as his human. As his person, yeah. Didn't like didn't like Maximus too much. They both wanted to pick Miriam as as their person, so there was you know the conflict there. Possible <laughs> <laughs> conflict, yeah. But that is so true, though, with animals, too, where the animals pick the humans. Um, you know, yeah. I, my yeah. husband and I joke, we, uh, with every single one of our dogs, the dogs that we picked out for each other have been the other person's dog. Like, the one, the long-haired dog I got for myself, the long-haired dachshund. I thought she was going to be girly. I wanted a long-haired so I can brush her and put bows in her and so she could be all girly. I picked her out. So naturally, she's my husband's dog and this total tomboy. <laughs> and then our short hair he picked out, and she's a mama's girl. Animals in literature can be a lot of fun. I, lo I love Lion Cat. Are you guys familiar with Lion Cat? This is Saga. Okay. I've read a little bit of Saga. Okay. Now, did that have some influence on who Thrax was? Um, no, I, I didn't start reading Saga until after I pretty much was done writing Golden Dragon. Um, okay. my, my daughter had a um, whole bunch of them and uh, had told me a little bit about it. But So this lion cat is, is the sidekick of a bounty hunter named The Will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talk about good names, you know, <laughs> characters. And the lion cat only says one thing. He goes, if someone's lying, the lion cat goes, lying. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so the will asks the cat, you know, is, is she lying? And he goes, he either says lying or it just goes, ruff. <laughs> He's not lying and the cat just goes, ruff. <laughs> Walks away. That's a useful animal to have. <laughs> sure is. Sort things out for you. I think we've got one more question here. So I think we've covered just about them all. We haven't gotten into the wonderful relationship with Miriam and her mother. Her distant mother who comes to comes back to haunt her. Um, really in the end, at least she tries. Um, go ahead, yeah. Michelle. Oh, no, go. You go. Oh, okay. I was just going to read the question. <laughs> so um, the question is, um, she pulls a lot of strings and influence, um, especially after, uh, even after Miriam flees. Uh, are there any plans uh, for her to make an appearance in the future novels? Do we actually get to meet this, this crazy woman? Um, I had not thought about that and uh, having her make an appearance. Uh, so both Miriam and Sara, her mother, mm -hmm. are minor characters in my first novel. Okay. And, you know, then I, when I, mo most authors get a seed, you know, some little idea that starts you out uh, down the path of writing a certain story. So my, my, my little seed for, for um, Golden Dragon was an actual true life account of uh, capture of a woman by South China Sea Pirates. It's called, um, See if I, I wrote it down here. The lady's captivity among Chinese pirates in the in the Chinese seas, and the woman's name was Fanny Levio. Um, okay. Last name was L O V I O T. Mm -hmm. And 
her uh, this uh, her incident that she wrote about was um, mid 19th century, so about 1860s, 1850s, and some of the some of the incidents that she describes of her experience of being taken off this merchant ship and held captive by by pirates um, appear in the book. Like they, she describes being held on the in in this storage compartment on the deck of the pirate ship. Oh, I hated that oh, part. Oh God, really? Well, the, <laughs> there were really the the creepy well, crawlies. There were really. Oh my God. Oh, oh. bug infested. Yes. So I thought that you know, chapter all the more terrifying to know <laughs> that that actually happened to somebody. <laughs> all right. Truth is always stranger than than fiction. <laughs> Absolutely. With, with fiction, you've always got to try to be plausible. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. In real life, things happen that just didn't happen. <laughs> not, you know, they're very strange. Anyway, so that that true life account was kind of the seed that, that started me thinking of the story. Uh, that and the title, my dad had suggested the title of, um, of Golden Dragon. So I, you know, <laughs> wanted to make something <laughs> of it. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, I hadn't thought of, of bringing Sara Albuye into the into a story. But would you like to see that? Yes, maybe that can help spark uh, book three. Huh? Yeah, never <laughs> know like, uh, where these things will take you. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit afraid, you know, that in in my books I've I've been kind of ageist. <laughs> <laughs> Because I always seem to be vilifying the older generation, you know, the, the generation of these characters' parents. Like, that's the way Golden Dragon ends, right? They, mm -hmm. they start talking about, uh, or Maximus Thorpe says, do you ever think about how we always think that, our, that they were monkeys in our parents' day? <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of did a little bit of the same thing in my historical fiction that I, I made the one of the protagonists' father, a, sort of a, a bad guy, you know. <laughs> so I'm a little, little con worry, always worried about who am I making the villain here, you know? Who am I vilifying today? I think that mother would just make a great villain, if not a great villain, just a real thorn in Miriam's side. Just, she's, I like the idea, I mean, of even her, from afar, being having such an influence on Miriam, you know, part of the reason why she's running, um, getting that quote unquote fiance after her, um, you know, working these schemes that, you know, it's very plausible that she works such a big scheme and such a huge scheme that Miriam gets caught up in it, whether it's an intentional one to pull Miriam in, in or not. It's almost like, I don't know, I'm obsessed with the show Shameless right now. And the dad and shameless Frank, he always has these horrible these horrible schemes that the kids wind up getting caught into, even though they're trying to stay away from their train wreck of a father. I are, you are, you, huh? are you watching the American version or the UK version? I'm watching the American version. I usually, it's weird for me, I usually go with the UK version for almost everything first. Uh -huh. um, but for some reason, for this one, I ended up with the U.S. version. 
Yeah, I got into it too, and I watched quite a bit of the American, you know, a couple of seasons of the American version. Mm-hmm. And then sort of early on when I was watching it, I went and watched the first episode of the UK version, and it, it it's the same, you know, mm-hmm. of course. Um, so the scripts are, are exactly the same. A lot of the BBC shows, when they come over to the US, they're exactly the same. Um, right. Death at a Funeral was a, a British yeah, movie. I saw yeah. That. I saw and both the American and the UK versions. Yeah, yeah. And I loved, I like both versions, but I think I like the UK version more. Um, or Attack the Block. A friend of mine, it's this obs- almost obscure English movie with, um, it's got one of the guys from Shaun of the Dead in it. And um, it's very British. And they, when they brought it over to the US, it was, um, was it the neighborhood watch or the neighbors the one where they end up having the battle aliens in the costco oh <laughs> that was based on attack the block the british one so but i think i like the british version better of that too um but yeah that's it's usually the same especially with the television shows when they translate them they uh, i don't know some of them just don't you don't necessarily need that u.s translation but i think it works for shameless i think the u.s translation works because it's Chicago, and you've got a little bit more of an Americanized issues and troublemaking. Just to let you know, Frank shows up in the middle of Mexico once, Michelle, and he wakes up in the middle of Canada once, too. So, yeah, I watched um, maybe somewhere, if not the whole first season, maybe halfway through the first season. but I loved it. I just haven't, I got distracted and I haven't gone back. <laughs> Easy to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's so much out there. Oh, so yes. If we have a, a little time left, I'd like, I'd like to maybe hear some criticisms from both of you, like um, criticisms and then, or, or things that you'd like to see more of. It's always useful for me to hear especially in a series like if you like the triangle you want to see more of dashwood you're disappointed oh, dashwood, dashwood and i want to see more of the triangle um, <laughs> and <laughs> straight up saying huh yes uh, i can jump right on top of that that's at the top of my wishes and i want to see more of zara i want to see more of her character in the next books i want to you know that i want to see more more trouble from her i think she'd make it just whether or not she's like a straight up villain, just a thorn, a pain in her ass, a pain in Miriam's ass, really, where it's like, oh, I gotta go deal with my mother again. Love to see that. Well, fiction, you gotta have that in fiction. <laughs> a lot of conflict. <laughs> Michelle. Michelle, your thoughts? I, I would love to hear more about Miriam's backstory, <clears throat> especially with the fiance and the rumors, whatever the rumors were about her and her stepfather. Oh yeah. I and, and compounded with this woman that, that she saved, this British woman, um, I forget her name, but this little blonde prissy thing uh, oh. was going around saying stuff now too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like her. <laughs> I could have just left her on the island. I would have been cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got to make it out. <laughs> <laughs> her and her integrity. 
Um, I also wouldn't mind learning more about Thorpe's backstory. I mean, he mentions at the very end, he starts mentioning a little bit about, you know, his, his father and how he got his, his eye color, um, his different eye colors and how, you know, that, that's an injury that happened. Um, but he's such an interesting character that I, I think it would be fun to learn more about him. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of room to have fun with him. I think. Um, since you're both really avid readers, where would you place the book as far as genre goes? Do you think this is a young adult novel or not? I don't think so. Oh. Yeah, think I don't think so either. And, and I'm not just saying that because I don't like young adult novels. Um, I think it would be, I mean, I could see a young adult liking it. Um, I would probably place it with either like a new adult if you if you really wanted to place it out you know within a specific age genre. I would say um, good for twenty somethings, you know, college age. Somebody who's you know, Miriam is in a way trying to find herself and has an idea of who she is and where she came from. And I think that's a and you know it's a good book for for girls in general. To have this character like Miriam, who, who has an, a sense of who she is when they're still trying to figure out who they are, and having just somebody who that they can look up to in that regards. Yeah, I think the characters are a little, um, little too complex to put them in the young adult category. Um, I, I feel like maybe young adult, uh, the act not you know not adults who like reading young adult, but actual young adult, you know the teenagers, I, I feel like they might have a hard time relating to the characters just because they're a little beyond their scope, if that makes sense. Yeah, the, so this issue, issue of genres is, is kind of difficult, um, well, for me, since all of my books tend to kind of be bleeding over into, you know, other areas. Um, this This one is possibly young adult, steampunk, historical fiction, historical fantasy. So it, it's really difficult to, um, from a marketing standpoint, to know where you should be concentrating your... <laughs> I would definitely put it into the steampunk category. Um, like when I was talking with the chef at Robin's Nest, um, when I brought it, I, I described it as a steampunk book, and I happen to have it in my purse because really this is perfect purse size, everyone. Seriously, <laughs> I carry this around in my purse uh, almost all month, and I was able to whip it out when I when I wanted to and, and read a chapter or two. Um, and so when I brought it out to him, I was like, oh, it's you know it's steampunk, and he was like, oh, I love steampunk, and I I just passed the book over the bar to him, and he read the back, and he was like, oh, it sounds so great, I, I'm gonna have to buy one when she comes in. Um, so yeah, I mean, a steampunk fan even, you know, considered it steampunk. So I would definitely put it in that regards. And I think steampunk in general would fall under historical fantasy. Yeah, well, that's true. It's quite a, it's quite a community. <laughs> <laughs> that it is, yes. <laughs> I've met, um, there's a steampunk Star Wars group. Oh, is that right? Yes. Yeah, we did a... It was funny because we did the, um, we were uh, cheering on people in January during the Disney race. 
uh, they do a half a half marathon, or I'm not sure if it's a full marathon or half marathon. I think it's a half marathon, and we are part of the section cheering people on in um, Star Wars costumes. Though I was the one rebel who had to show up in a um, Serenity outfit and <laughs> pissing off all the stormtroopers because everybody wanted the picture with me because uh, everybody loved my character. But then there was a group of um, steampunk uh, Star Wars uh, people. And it was, it, the costumes are always so interesting and so innovative. And it definitely lends itself to like this book with the airships and the innovation set with the history. Well, yeah, I hope it, I hope it finds its place in, in that audience. Uh, mm -hmm. I think so. Well, we're going to have some uh, steampunk people coming over at Boca de Oro. Um, because I obviously have to plug it because we're a little over a week away from that. <laughs> and yes. we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see how the steampunk people enjoy the book. We're gonna be pushing it off to them. I d I don't think it's the only one in the festival, but at um, least you can tell by covers because in the cover slideshow for the for the Boca de Oro uh, website, mm -hmm. there's a whole group of, of novels that that have that real steampunk look to them. I don't know if they are. There's a fan. There's a whole fantasy and uh, sci-fi section, and I have no clue what books are there. Um, so I don't know who's there, what's there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a steampunk uh, book or two at least in that section. Yeah, some of those covers really look like they're in the steampunk genre. I'll have to go back and look now. <laughs> Well, I still maintain that you guys have to set up a laptop so I can watch. And, <laughs> and, and we're going to have to figure out whether or not I can do a laptop or if we're just going to have to do a phone for you. So that you I don't care. Just just prop me up against, like, a wine bottle. <laughs> <laughs> we'll totally do that. We, we can do that for you. <laughs> well, I think we are out of time this evening. No, I know we could probably go for another hour. Mm -hmm. just but thank you so much for joining us tonight, Eva. It was really fun to, to speak with you after obsessing over your book all month. <laughs> thank you. It's my pleasure. It was yes. a lot of fun talking to you both. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. And you can come next week. Anybody who's watching or listening, come next week and meet Eva and uh, check out her book and pick up a copy for yourself at Boca de Oro because she will be there. And I'll be the cell phone propped up against the wine bottle. So, <laughs> cheering from you Chicago. To the festival. <laughs> yeah. you'll, be, you'll be having Erin on, uh, Wine, Women, and Words, next week? Um, she isn't confirmed with us yet, um, so I have to confirm and see if she is because she was at the AWP conference really recently. So I'm not sure if she's back from that yet or not. So I'll have to bug her and see if she's going to be available to join us next week. Well, this was a great experience, and I really appreciate your feedback. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you books. so much. Yes. All right. Well, everyone, I hope you have a wonderful night. Now, starting next week, we are launching our, uh, what month are we in now? March um, book of the month, which is, we're switching over from fantasy into uh, nonfiction. I think this is our first nonfiction book that we're doing. It is. 
And we, I'm looking and seeing how many chapters we have to do. We have to see how many we have to do. Um, because I have, I just got my book and I haven't looked at it. We're looking at, I don't know, 200 pages. Somebody has, I you, I'm so bad about reading nonfiction if it's not like research based. So, uh, Michelle usually has is dragging me, kicking me, and screaming, slight ever so slightly. So we're going to be reading Good Girls Revolt uh, next month. And you might know this from the Amazon series, Good Girls Revolt. Um, so this is actually the book that that TV show or that series was based on. Um, and Lynn Povich was one of the women in that lawsuit. So it's going to be a really interesting book. I'm excited to read it. And I'm equally excited to speak with her at the end of the month about it. Yes. Wow. I know. It's very exciting. <laughs> So we've got 11 chapters plus where are they now? So that's see, 12. So we figure what, three chapters a week? Totally doable. Yeah, that's totally doable. Well, I hope everyone has a good night. We'll be back next week, hopefully with Erin. It's up in the air. But <laughs> uh, thank you, Eva, again. And everyone have a good night. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.